0: And now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You
1: can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield.
2: Hey there, what's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Chat with Traders podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Fifield. This week's guest is Brian Shannon, who first and foremost is a professional trader whose involvement with the market dates back well over 20 years. He's also the author of the highly regarded book Technical Analysis Using Multiple Time Frames, and thirdly, Brian is the founder of Alpha Trends, an educational company focused on teaching traders how to navigate the market successfully. For the most part, Brian is a swing trader, with the occasional day trade in the mix. During the interview, Brian discusses both of these approaches and gives a few pointers that may even help you to discover the right time frame for your own trading. We also talk about understanding the psychology of market participants within well-known patterns. The two indicators that Brian uses most often and one of them being VWAP, which is volume-weighted average price. And Brian also walks us through the four stages of a market cycle, accumulation, markup, distribution, and the decline. So all in all, Brian hit on plenty of great topics, and I feel like you're really going to enjoy the insight he shares with us. So I'm your host, Aaron Firefield. This is Chat with Traders, and here is this week's guest, Brian Shannon. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Going well, Aaron. Thanks for having me on here today. No trouble whatsoever. Thanks so much for coming on. I've really been looking forward to this and um, there's plenty I'm keen to discuss with you. And I mean, I really should just say I've got a ton of notes here. So, so let's just get right into it. Now, you've been involved with the markets for more than 20 years as a pro, uh, but your first experience with trading dates back much further. Would you like to share with us the story about your first interaction with the markets? And then we'll go deeper from there.
1: Yeah, my first equities trade was a company called Low Jack, and Low Jack was a—I think they're still around—but they they track stolen vehicles basically. And this was 25 years ago. I used to sit around and watch Wall Street Week with my dad on Friday nights, and I saw this uh, news broadcast about this technology for stolen vehicles, and I remember you know telling my dad, "Hey, I thought that was a pretty cool idea," and he said, "Well, let's let's buy some of this stock." It was. I think it was $4 a share. And I I had maybe $500 saved up from various odd jobs, caddying and that sort of newspaper routes, that sort of thing. And he said, well, buy 1,000 shares. You put up your $500. If you lose, you you lose the $500, uh, but you make money. So I didn't realize at the time, but he was essentially giving me 8 to 1 leverage (laughs) on this trade. Um, Fortunately, it worked out, and it went to $10 a share about – six months later. And, you know, for no other reason than, hey, it's 10 bucks a share. I said, let's sell this. And so I made a profit of $6,000. And from there, I was pretty much instantly hooked and thought, this is great. You know, why would anyone ever have to work for uh, a living when you can just do the, uh, you know, trade like this? And obviously, it's not that simple. I, I had some very good beginner luck and uh, it, it worked well. But it, that, that's what really piqued my curiosity.
2: Yeah, that, that definitely is um, some, some very nice beginner's luck right there. Um, so, what was, your, what was your sort of motivation to, to buy that? Like, where did the idea come from to actually put your money into that uh, company when you could have invested in, you know, any company on, that's listed on the market.
1: Yeah, I had seen on television uh, a local news broadcast saying how that this technology was reluctant to be brought on at first because the uh, state police in Massachusetts didn't want to pay for the uh, transponders to, to track the Stolen vehicles down. So the company said we're going to donate them to the state police department, and the state police were real excited about it. And I remember hearing one of the cops on television say, "Hey, I think this is great. I even bought stock in it." Found out later that the, that the trooper, you know, basically had inside information when he bought it, and and had to give his profits back on that. But it didn't prevent me from, uh, you know, coming up with the idea. And uh, I was, you know, probably just a, a young impression. Kid who wanted to bond with his dad and thought that this was a great idea and knew that you know he's he was in the market and uh, we had been watching Wall Street Week like I said and I figured hey let's uh, put some of this to work what, what do you think dad and he took the initiative to say okay let's
2: do it okay excellent and just quickly was your how how active was your dad in the markets was he an active trader.
1: No, my dad is—he's retired now, but he's a physician, and he would—you uh, know—he—he—he he, he was pretty active, but not by any measure compared to you know like what I do today or have where you know where my trading has evolved to. He's been more of a buy and hold for you know six to twelve month type of uh,
2: investments. Okay, sure, cool. All right. Well, um, so from college, moving forward a couple of years. Uh, You landed a job as a stockbroker, how did that come about and what sort of tasks were you doing in your role as a stockbroker on sort of a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, the interesting thing was that I really didn't know what a stockbroker did, Uh, and and maybe that's naive, but uh, I think it's good, too, because I I probably wouldn't have gotten into it if I realized what a broker's job was. So, you know, after college, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I liked the market and I happened to... uh, Find a, a, a brokerage firm that was willing to to sponsor me for the Series Seven license. Once that occurred, I I went, you know, in uh, to to the office, and uh, they basically gave us a script and said. Start, you know, calling off these lists, find phone books, uh, alumni directories and that sort of thing. And it was, uh, you know, after I passed my Series 7 license and was making the calls for a while, I realized that uh, the business was really a, a glorified telemarketing position, not the, uh, you know, trading that I was interested in. So again, probably a little bit naive, but it's, uh, you know, it, 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 got me in the door. Um, I went to a more established firm, which was Lehman Brothers and really learned how to sell there more than anything, which was, which was great training. And then, uh, just kind of transitioned to, to trading, uh, from there after, uh, you know, moving to a couple different brokerage
2: firms. Okay. So you were mostly on the phones there, um, trying to convince people to buy buy stock. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, you know, I, I like to kid around about it and say that um, it was great experience because I got to practice with other people's money and I wasn't, you know, cavalier with anyone's money that they entrusted me to, but I, I did learn a lot of good lessons by not having my money in the market and learning how the market worked a little bit. So I was instantly attracted to technical analysis. It made a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, one one of the early uh, influences there, I guess, was. The, there was a, a newsletter called the Cabot Market Letter, and they had written about, you know, they were interested in buying this stock if it got above a certain level. And I thought, well, isn't that strange? Why would somebody want to buy it at a higher price? That seems kind of counterintuitive. So I looked into it, and you know I saw the chart, and it instantly made sense that if it got above that level of resistance, I didn't know even know that's what it was called at the time, but if it got above there, that it looked like it was uh, Clear sailing from there. So I ended up getting involved in that stock, made money, and just started to uh, devour everything I could find uh, about technical analysis.
2: Okay, sure. So, um, so you went to the stockbroker firm, um, and then you went to Lehman Brothers. From there, I believe you you ended up um, trading with a with a prop firm. What was your experience like trading with a firm, and what was the attraction to actually get into a firm instead of? trading your own money just um you know as a retail guy
1: yeah i think i was 20 20- Two or twenty-three years old when I did that, and it was basically I had saved up some money in the, in the market, and I had seen in the back of Investors Business Daily there was every single week a uh, advertisement for trade with our our capital or you know earn twenty to use twenty to one leverage is what it was. So I was intrigued with that because I figured that I didn't have enough money to really. Um, get involved in the market with the amount of capital that I had. So I was still a broker. I answered this ad, went to New York and uh, met with these guys. And the, the I, I signed up as a remote trader and this was, you know, 24K modem. And I remember being all excited with a 48K modem sitting there in my basement trading. And they didn't give a lot of training. That was the thing that, you know, they basically said, okay, we'll, we'll give you a shot. Uh, you will get to keep X percentage. Of your profits, and I had you know, I, I basically borrowed some money to put down for that initial $25,000 deposit, um, and so therefore, I was extremely risk averse, and that really helped me. I mean, they, they say don't trade with scared money, and I don't think it was necessarily scared money, but I was being smart and um, really. Uh, You know, people say they don't like to lose. And and I say in the market, you have to hate to lose. You really have to, uh, when when you start feeling something moving against you and you get uncomfortable, you just have to get the heck out of it. So I got, I, I, I was fortunate in a way that I wasn't scared money, that I had the opportunity to see how stocks traded, uh, you know, technically, uh, through my experiences as a retail broker. So that was great experience for me. And from there, then I helped them. uh, That is the New York uh, firm that I was with. I helped them open an office in Denver and kind of, you know, started branching out that way a little bit.
2: Okay, sure. And did you mention in there that you were working um, or you were trading, sorry, remotely uh, from the firm?
1: Yes. Yes. It was. Um, you know. So they they were out of New York and they didn't have any local offices. So they were sponsoring people to, uh, you know, trade with with their leverage basically, and uh, you know they got a piece of the commission and they marked up the the. Uh, uh, commissions a little bit so uh, that plus the the additional uh profit that they made it you know it was a good business model for them and it was a great opportunity for 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 myself
2: okay sure and do are there many prop firms that still kind of operate that way today
1: uh, yeah there are yeah there there's still i mean if you dig around you can find them and they are you know a lot of times people are attracted to them. I I can't criticize the firms or the people who are attracted to them because what, what they typically attract are people with less capital and maybe not a whole lot of education either, but they're willing to give them a shot basically in the market. And I would say that you know, knowing what I know about the markets today that I took a huge risk that I would not recommend anyone else do when I did do that uh, account with the prop firm, but it worked for me, so I think that everyone you know has the right to make that decision for themselves.
2: yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned right there that you took on a huge amount of risk um, to do this. Did you ever have a backup plan in case this trading thing never took off for you? Um, great
1: question. And um, I can't really say that I had a defined backup plan. It was more, I'm going to make this work one way or another. And I suppose that if if it didn't work out, I would have returned to the brokerage business and, and started uh, you know, building a book of business that way again.
2: Okay, sure. So during this time up until sort of where we are right now in your journey, what would you say was the biggest challenge, you know, within these sort of first five years, the biggest challenge or the, some of the hurdles that you had to overcome that were essentially affecting your P&L in a negative way?
1: well i think it's true for almost anyone that we are our own worst enemies and you know i'm not sure if that's the answer you're looking for if you're thinking you know maybe some external factor but but realistically i think that we are All our own worst enemy in the market that even today, I, you know, I'm still astounded some days uh, about some of the decisions I make during the day and think, well, I knew better than that. What was I thinking? And and to to control our impulses and to be more disciplined, to cut losers quickly and to hold winners, real basic stuff, those are the things that, that trip pretty much everyone up and continue to plague. You know anyone involved in the market who, who's honest? We are human. We we do get emotionally involved, even though we try not to. And the the thing that I've gotten a lot better at is recognizing those times when I'm making poor decisions and saying enough, just stop, liquidate the position. This is not smart. So it's 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 a matter of probably trading too more specifically maybe i started trading too big and too concentrated in certain positions but at the same time, right before I learned a great lesson, right before I started with that prop firm, because I was trading a company called Chantel Pharmaceuticals, and they had—they weren't a pharmaceutical; they were a, a complete fraud, actually. They—they they had a a miracle skin cream that eliminated wrinkles, and this stock was. Going, it, it was. It started out at maybe six bucks a share, and I was on it because it had big volume. It was breaking out, and I was trading it up to about twenty three, twenty four. I held some over the weekend, uh, one one weekend, uh, maybe a thousand shares at uh, twenty one bucks a share. And I remember that Monday morning seeing that the stock was halted. New and and it was you know Barrons did a uh, hit piece on it and the stock went free. It was basically cut in half and I I lost maybe eight to twelve thousand dollars. I don't remember the numbers overnight. um, Right before I was just getting my money together to go trade. So the lesson there was not to have such uh, concentrated positions, especially in you know little story stocks and. There, you know, there, there's there's so many lessons you learn along the way, but that that was one that really stood out for me that that almost eliminated me from ever getting involved uh, with that prop firm.
2: Okay, sure. So I really like that answer, and that's a um, an excellent example too. While that was probably quite a painful point um, in in your sort of development stage. Were there any points where you felt like maybe you weren't just cut out to be a trader and you you actually came close to giving up?
1: Yeah, actually, um, it was probably in, I'm just going to say, it was maybe 2000, 2001. Uh, At that point, the... Market was getting crushed, and I had not learned at that point yet that uh, you know you can't just keep buying stuff that goes down. And um, I was actually had a prop trading firm of I, I can't really call it a prop trading firm, more of a uh, people kind of would come in and trade with their own money, and we we would help them with uh, getting extra capital, but. The market was getting crushed, and and I was losing money pretty consistently uh, at that time. Just buying stuff in downtrends and expecting that they would bounce, and they weren't bouncing. And I, I did. Uh, I, I nearly dissolved the account. I was super close. I took a couple of weeks and did some reflecting. Came back and talked to the partner that I had at that time and said, "Listen, I, you know, here's what I need to do." Um, fortunately, we had a business and we were, we were, the business was profitable, so I just slowed things way down uh, and you know started trading. Maybe I don't even remember, but you know, uh, half of or a third of my normal size, and just started grinding it back and, and getting back into it uh, in a more disciplined way and, and reevaluating and learning. So I was real close, though, to, to throwing it away. And if I did not have a backup plan, uh, you know, backup business where I was able to pay bills. Then there's no doubt in my mind that I would have been out of the business, and no idea what I would be doing uh, today. I just, yeah, I was very fortunate, I think.
2: Okay, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so let me ask: from when you left the stockbroking firm uh, job to at, at what point? How long did it take you until you reached a level of consistent? profitability like when did things really start to click for you
1: well I you know I remember my first six or six or seven months I was profitable every month and I was being super disciplined and cutting losses then I started to get a little bit of that uh, ego involved where I thought I knew everything and you know, then I, I started to uh, go through a, a, a down stage. Fortunately, I kept it limited. And it, it was really um, just you know, in, in evolution, really. The, the whole thing, obviously, trading in general is an evolution. And you come back to the basic principles. So uh, I kind of got lost on that question there for a moment. But... You know, the thing that I would say is that my lessons learned are that the the basic things that I still preach to to this day, only price pays, follow the trend. I repeat those things a lot of times to remind myself because that's really the principles of – uh, you know how you make good money in the market, and, and I believe you get exactly what you deserve in the market. That you can't make excuses. That if I lose, it's because I did something stupid and I hold myself accountable. I can't complain about Greece or China or whatever the news of the day is. I have to recognize the environment we're in and adapt to it, or stand on the sidelines and wait till things make sense
2: yeah totally so let's get into that a little bit um, a little bit deeper. so describe to us if you could your actual trading style and your methodology for how you approach the markets these days
1: well. My, my main approach, I mean, sometimes I will do counter tr- uh, trend trades on an intraday basis, but the main approach is that I'm a trend trader and I'm looking for stocks, for instance, in an uptrend and using multiple time frames. So, as I describe it, it's not really quite this simple, but identify a stock on a longer-term time frame. So when I'm looking at a swing trade setup, and that's my preferred time frame, is that I want to look for stocks that will last a few days uh, in terms of the trend if you know if the market warrants it. And obviously there's certain conditions where we've got a choppy market and it's just not feasible. But I'll look for the the bigger trend on, on a daily time frame and a real very, very simple thing that I look at is, what's the direction of the 50-day moving average? Now, that will just tell me, okay, if it's if it's rising, well, then we're in an uptrend, and I look at that stock and say, okay, that's not a stock I want to short. If the stock has a declining 50-day moving average, I say, that's not a stock I want to uh, buy because it's in a downtrend. So, I'll look at it and see, you know, has it had a, a period of uh, um, volatility contraction and, you know, that is, has it pulled back? And so the uptrending stock, if it's pulled back to a prior level of resistance that looks like it might be support or a key moving average or retracement level, or just something significant technically, then I will say, okay, now on that daily chart, um, I've identified a possible trade candidate. Then I will go down to a 30 minute chart. So each candle representing 30 minutes for the last twenty to forty days, whatever is whatever I need to to kinda see what's relevant basically. So on that 30 minute time frame, and it's not just a 30 minute time frame, you have to be aware of all the time frames really, but but this is again simplifying it. Then I'll look at it and say, okay, on this thirty minute time frame, where has the stock come from? So if it's you know if it's run 10% in the last three days, it tells me the risk reward isn't good there. But if instead we've got a stock in a strong uptrend that's pulled back on diminished volume, and it's starting to undergo a little bit of accumulation on that 30-minute time frame, then I'll start to look a little bit more carefully. And in one of the guidelines I use on an intraday uh, intermediate-term time frame, such as a 30-minute chart that goes back 20 to 40 days, is a five-day moving average, and I generally want to buy the stock when it makes a higher high above a flat to rising five-day moving average. And that tells me the intermediate term trend is now turning back up, and I have a logical place to set my stop, which would be, as I like to say, underneath the most recent and relevant higher low. So that if, if I see that the entry relative to the uh, to the initial protective stop is you know small enough to justify a position and that this the trend on the the longer term time frame looks like it should be able to continue in the direction uh, you know in this case in an uptrend uh, then I'll look to say where's the potential for resistance or where would it likely slow down and based on that perceived, amount of potential reward then we then I come up with the risk reward and say okay this is a stock that makes sense so i use that 30 minute time frame to Come up with the risk reward and to plan the trade, and then I'll go down to like a 10-minute chart, each candle representing 10 minutes, over the last 10 days or so, and I'll start to anticipate the trade now more. I, I will, I'll start to stock it, set alerts. You know, if I think it's going to break out beyond 25.50, I'll set an alert, let's say at $25.40. and then if when that alert triggers, I'll start to look at the stock a little bit more carefully. I'll see, you know, what's the overall market doing? Is there, you know, if the market's down and, and the advanced decline line is, is let's say two to one negative, I might, you know, still, I'd say, well, I still want to look at this stock, but maybe I'll trade smaller share size. And so I start stocking it. I'll reset my alert to 25.45 or 25.48, or I'll start to watch it on a shorter term time frame. And then I want to make my decision based on price only. I don't want to look at it and say, well, the volume's not there yet, because a lot of times people will wait for volume, but the volume will come a day and a half later, when the stock has already moved five or six percent, so to trust price action. Going back to your question of you know what lessons have I learned, I think that trusting price action, if you have a good plan and you have a backup plan for it, that that really uh, is you're you're going to get into a lot more trades and and not talk yourself out of them because you know, the volume's not there yet or there was a divergence uh, with the MACD or, well, I don't like what the NASDAQ is doing or, you know, something like that. So to take each trade based on the merits of that trade individually and if there are macro concerns about the market or some kind of event coming, to use that for the money management aspect and to uh, reduce my position size to compensate for that higher volatility or perception that that we might you know might not be able to follow through as strong as if the entire market was uh, in in a better trending condition. So it's a long winded answer.
0: Sorry. No, that's excellent. That's really good. So- you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public. They took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find Evaluate and Buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for, then
3: and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
2: So, just so we're clear, um, like you spoke there a lot about price action and focusing on the price itself. How do you treat fundamentals and news? I think you might have briefly touched on that there, but just so we're clear, Do the fundamentals and news have any impact on your decisions to get into a trade?
1: I try to not let them. I am generally aware, so I want to know what are the potential catalysts for a stock. So if, if for instance, I'm looking at this stock and I think it's a buy, but then I see they, they're due to report earnings after the close, then I'm not going to trade the stock because I don't want to gamble on earnings. I, you know, that's a lesson I've learned in the past as well. Gambling on earnings, it's, it's gambling. There, there's no edge there. So I will be aware of what the catalysts are potentially. I'll be aware of the news headlines at least to try to determine what it, What are the catalysts, what's shaping the psychology in the market today. Um, but I try not to read into it too much and have an opinion of the news itself because the news is often, I don't want to say made up, but coincident to the price action. Um, Not leading, uh, or or it's um, you know we can't always trust accountants. We can't trust CEOs that the news is actually what's happening. That and 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 that's why I, I adamantly say over and over again, only price pays. That you can be aware of the headlines and that sort of thing, but market doesn't care what I think about a stock. About what its value is, or what it should do based on uh, an earnings report or something. The only thing that's going to pay or hurt is price action. So I would rather lose my opinion than lose my money and, and move to the sidelines quickly, because you can always reassess the trade and, and determine to get back in. But but there's there's a tendency to that when we. Uh, look at the news we get our egos and our opinions and we think the need to be right uh, becomes stronger and really you know uh, clouds our judgment
2: yeah okay that's excellent to hear about Um, now this is something you you often talk about and that is focusing on the psychology of patterns and less about the actual pattern itself like whether it's a a cup and handle, or a double bottom, or whatever it might be. So, could you explain perhaps your reasoning for looking at patterns from this angle?
1: Well, there's nothing wrong with recognizing a pattern, and I often talk about candles, for instance, as well. They, you know, some people be looking at a, a candle and they'll say, "Hey, that's a doji," and it, it, you know, on the daily time frame. And 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 I'm more interested in what happened underneath the surface. How did that doji? come about that it sold off strong in the morning and might have chopped sideways for a little bit, but then the buyers regain control and I can see it much uh, better on a shorter term time frame. That is, I, I can understand the psychology of what's shaping it and and back to the cup and handle, nothing wrong with recognizing, um, you know, these these classic technical patterns. And, and I started like that as well, uh, you know looking at recognizing technical patterns, but I saw a lot of them fail. And what is it behind there that, that makes a sense? So a cup and handle, you could train a monkey to recognize cups and handles. You can program a computer to do it, but there's a lot, there's the art of technical analysis, the, the science rather of technical analysis versus the art of trading and understanding, hey, things can and often do uh, go wrong—that is, they don't work out as anticipated the way a technical analysis book will tell you it should. So, I want to—I want to see that, you know, the the what the the. So, a cup and handle—a stock comes up to a certain level of, uh, it, you know, at eighty dollars a share. It runs up to that. It pulls back down to seventy, and it runs up to eighty again. But there's still supply there that's unable to be taken out at that point, so the stock backs off again. But instead of backing off down to $70 a share, it finds buyers at $76 a share, it finds support and starts rallying up towards that $80 level again. And then it might even dip down to 78 and then hit the 80 and then break out. So the, the point is, though, that these higher lows that are being established tell me that the buyers are gaining control price-wise. They're not waiting for the pullback to 70. Instead, they take control at 75. Then they take control at 78. So they're getting more aggressive price-wise. And the distance, the time distance between those tests of resistance uh, might be, you know, from the first test of 80, it might have been, uh, either, you know, the sec- to the second test, it might have been uh, a month and a half. And then four weeks later we test that eighty level again and it pulls back to seventy eight. Then two weeks later it comes back up again. So they're getting more aggressive not only price wise with the higher bids where they're taking control, but time wise that they're coming back more often to test and work through that supply being offered at the eighty dollar level. So if it you know, so you can understand what's happening rather than just saying, hey, that's a cup and handle. I read about those. Those are bullish. I'm going to buy it. It just gives you that better understanding uh, of, of, you know, what's, what the forces are underneath the market How you, so you want to look at the market and say you're going to have one of three positions you could be long you could be short or you could be in cash how do the longs feel how would you feel if you were long and where would you be getting more aggressive how would you feel if you're the seller at that $80 level and you your, your supply gets worked through or if you're a short seller and you're trying to hold it back at, at that $80 level and if you have the uh, ability to be objective and on the sidelines in cash, where do you get involved at the uh, at the best risk reward standpoint? So it's it, it's not really super complicated to to try to put yourself. How would I feel if I was long there? If I was short on that stock, or if I'm in cash, you know, should I just ignore this stock, or is there the potential for opportunity in it?
2: Yeah, you mentioned a lot of great points in that answer. So thanks, thanks a lot for sharing that, Brian. Sure. Um, now I've noticed in your analysis of reading charts that you pay close attention to two indicators. Um, there might be others, but I noticed that you, you pay extra close attention to these two. So the first would be moving averages um, and the other would be VWAP, volume weighted average price. So I'd like to ask about both of these. Well, you sort of already covered the moving averages a little bit earlier. Um, but just on moving averages, they seem to get a bit of a bad rap. Um, a lot of people kind of regard them as maybe a tool for amateurs, or maybe they're just using them incorrectly. Or I'm not sure what it is. But have you noticed this? And why do you think? Why do you think this sort of um, is? I don't know if a stereotype's the right word, but there's kind of like a stereotype around moving averages is either ineffective.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people do mis- misunderstand and misuse moving averages. I, I look at them as a mathematical trend line, a a constant to compare price to over a certain period of time whether it be 20 days or 50 days or 200 the the peri- the, the time is the constant in other words in, in a moving average and just like we were talking about the psychology of a pattern i think it's even more important to realize with a moving average you, you know we're we're all taught that a 50 day moving average you know is support i say it tends to act as support so a stock in a strong uptrend pulls back to a 50 day moving average people will say that's a buy signal and to me it's not a buy signal but it's a reason to look more carefully at the stock in a shorter term time frame to look under the surface and see what's actually happening there because i can show you Uh, You know, thousands of examples where a stock pulls back to the 50-day moving average and just keeps going. Uh, That is, it just keeps dropping. Uh, So, it's 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 there's the psychology behind that 50-day moving average. If you're a long holder and you bought the stock, you know, let's think of a a mutual fund or someone, and they've got millions of shares of this stock and they bought it at 20 and it runs to, to 28. And it's you know four points above its 50-day moving average. They might say, "Hey, it's getting a little extended. Let's start paring our position back. Let's sell some, well, we can." So they sell uh, you know a couple hundred thousand shares. It pulls back down to the 50-day moving average, and they say, "All right, let's not sell anymore because the 50-day moving average often acts as support." So what they're doing is they're removing supply from the market at that area only because they've been they've they've observed, they've they've learned that the fifty day moving average often acts as support. Let's think about a short seller in the same situation who for you know thought, hey, this stock has gotten overheated, let's sell short some stock. We'll cover it down near the 50 day moving average. So they put the supply on the stock to bring it down to the 50 day moving average. They start to stick in their bids for the stock and they you know, they, they not only remove the sor- one of the sources of supply that helped get it to that 50 day moving average, but then they're also starting to add some demand in there by putting in bids. So the bids, are starting to show up, and the stock is losing supply, and we're starting to see that gradual shift. So I, I want to look underneath the surface and say, is there actual evidence? Let's let's go back to that thirty-minute time frame. Is there actual evidence on the thirty-minute time frame that the stock is starting to at least turn sideways? That the pattern we've seen over the last two weeks during this pullback of lower highs and lower lows. Is starting to show more neutral market, so we we see less supply. We're starting to see a little bit of demand, and then think about the people. Uh, you know, the big mutual fund might say, "Okay, we sold two hundred thousand shares between twenty-five and twenty-eight. Here it's at the fifty-day moving average. Let's let's bid for another hundred thousand shares. We'll replace part of our position in there and provide support for the stock as well." So they're they're putting in bids. That's that's the source of demand. And then you've got your uh, all of the people who look at moving averages and say, hey, the 50-day moving average usually acts as support. So I'm going to stick in a bid there. I want to get involved in this hot stock because it's pulled back to the 50-day moving average. So we you know we start to see that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This 50 day moving average, or a 10 day moving average, or whatever the dominant moving average is for that stock uh, on, on, on whatever time frame it is, a 200 day moving average, let's say. So there's the psychology behind why do people look at that level. Now let's take it one step further and say, Since that stock rallied from 20 to 28 and it's pulling back to 24, we might have another group of people who trade based on Fibonacci. And they're saying, well, it's pulled back to a 50% retracement. 50% has been a good level to buy this stock. So they kind of go through the same process of let's put in our our bids here. Let's remove supply. And then let's say there's another uh, factor such as – you know, the volume weighted moving average price since that event is in that area. So there's the psychology behind all these oscillators and indicators that are much more important than just looking at little squiggly lines and saying, okay, that's a buy signal. Okay, that's a sell signal.
2: Okay, excellent. So let's, let's talk about uh, the VWAP. I mean, what is it you like about this indicator and, and what separates VWAP from other indicators? The volume
1: weighted average price, what it does is it it takes, so whereas a, a, a regular, you know, simple price-based moving average is based on uh, a, a, of, pr- of, of the average price for whatever period of time you're looking at, it doesn't consider the volume That traded there. So if we have a stock that traded, let's just say, keep it real simple, if you had a stock that traded 100 shares at $20 a share uh, and 10,000 shares at at, uh, $19 a share, you can't really assign the same value on a moving average to say the average is 19 and a half. The average is really closer to 1901 based on volume. So we're looking at it from a, 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 the, the supply and demand in terms of the actual dollar amount assigned to a certain price level. And what I, what I like to look at is, for instance, the volume weighted average price since an event. One thing that's been really uh, helpful is, you know, av- you know since we, when a stock breaks out from 20 to 28, and then it begins to pull back, oftentimes you will see that buyers congregate or you know support is found near the volume weighted average price since that breakout event or more recently um, I you know I've, I've been tweeting about um, for instance in Alibaba and in and in, in uh, uh, GoPro the volume weighted average price levels since this these companies is actually became public and they've both you know, within the last couple months, uh, shown that you know, the stocks had some nice bounces and they rallied almost precisely to the level, the volume-weighted average price, since the stock came public. So there's a lot of psychology assigned to that level. It's the average price It says above this level, the average participant is making money, below it, The average participant is losing money, and we can start to, you know, delve into the psychology of the buyers and sellers and see how much they have at stake at certain, uh, you know, they tend to be inflection points. So at those levels, how much do they have at stake, and and who's, you know, gaining or losing control there?
2: All right, cool. So still on the subject of VWAP, do you find that it's more popular within the professional space? And if you do, why do you think that VWAP is maybe underutilized by retail traders? Well, they, you know,
1: one of the original uses of the volume weighted average price is for, let's say you have, you, let's say you work at Fidelity and you want to buy 2 million shares of, uh, of Alibaba. So you, you tell your broker, "Hey, I want to buy 2 million shares over the next 2 weeks." And, you know, what I want what I want you to do is to do a good job for me. The way I'm going to measure that is over the next 2 weeks, we're going to see what the volume-weighted average price was during that time. If you do better than the volume-weighted average price during that time, I'll give you more business. If you do worse than that, I'm gonna to go to a different brokerage firm and, and have their traders execute the trade for me so it's it's a, a value compare comparison for a lot of institutions in that regard. I think though that over the last several probably last, uh, you know, I, I've been looking at the VWAP for about 12, 13 years. And I actually stumbled upon it. Uh, in, in, I think that everyone looks at every oscillator and indicator when they first start out looking for that holy grail. And, you know, the VWAP just seemed, it, it just kind of spoke to me that it, it acted as support and resistance. So the it is becoming more... Widely used by by retail. Uh, fortunately, not overused. That it's still effective for looking at um, even intraday on a you know on a uh, in the markets. So, you know, I'll look at it often on a on a one minute chart and look for who's who's in control. And if it's got a declining volume weighted average price, generally I don't want to buy it. Uh, if it's got an advancing volume weighted average price, that is the average price has been increasing throughout the day the transaction level has been increasing throughout the day, then I generally don't want to short that stock. So it's, it's becoming more widely utilized. I, I like to think I have something to do with that. I've been tweeting about the VWAP and wrote about it in my book uh, in 08. Uh, so I've been tweeting about it and talking about it and writing about it since then. And um, I, it is becoming a lot more prevalent uh, with, with more retail type people.
2: Okay, sure. No, that's really well said. Um, now, you spoke um, a little bit earlier about your timeframe analysis, um, and I've just got a few more questions around that, but before we get into it, I think it would be beneficial if you could maybe run us through the four phases of market cycles as you see them. I believe you cover this in your book, but if you could just give us sort of a brief overview of um, the four different phases of a market cycle.
1: Sure actually you know what uh, I, I, I'll, I would like to do Aaron is to send you a copy of the infographic I had made up for that because it really explains it a lot more in detail uh, what what I'm going to be able to say and perhaps you can you know put a link up to it with, with this uh, podcast but yeah, essentially yeah. it's you know, As I as I mentioned, you know, when I first started trading, I I wanted to get I I got my hands on as much technical analysis information as I could. And what's always been attractive to me is is the simpler analysis. And Stan Weinstein's book from 1986, I believe, or something like that, uh, "Secrets for Profiting in Bull and Bear Markets." If any of your readers have you know or listeners have have read that, they'll see it's been a huge 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 influence on my career i I in fact sent a copy of my book to stan weinstein and uh and he you know he 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 praised me for it and you know saw that uh, i said hey stan you know this is i've been hugely influenced by your work i learned this from you and i want to give you credit and um Anyways, the four stages—it's it, uh, you know—goes back to the business cycle. The business cycle being, you know, we have periods of expansion, then we have a peak, then we have a decline and a trough. So we have these four stages, and in the market, uh, it's been described as stage one is accumulation. Accumulation occurs after a decline. So after a long decline. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a long decline. Let's say we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a daily chart, and, and the stock has experienced a, a significant pullback. As, as I like to say, if they don't scare you out, they'll wear you out. So during the stage four decline that precedes stage one accumulation, what you see is that. Uh, you know you've, you've got stubborn holders who, who hold the stock on the way down they're not being disciplined they're not cutting losses they're still believing the the press and the hype uh, around a stock but in that stage one accumulation what's happening is the you know the stock starts to become indecisive as the supply and demand starts to reach a little bit more of an equilibrium that you don't see there are these fearful sellers anymore it starts to turn a little bit more neutral so that accumulation Phase. What we see in there is that it, it can last a long time, and, and the one of the hallmarks of a accumulation is that we see moving averages crossing back and forth above and below each other. So, moving average crossovers represent indecision. A lot of people use them as a timing tool, and I think that's incorrect because moving average crossovers mean there's there's a conflict in terms of trend. So a 20-day moving average crossing up and down uh, up through and then down below a 50-day moving average says you know the intermediate and longer term trends are in conflict here there's no real trend revealing itself so it's a good avoid so during that stage one accumulation it's a good stock to avoid as those longer term moving averages flatten out and begin to you know start to turn higher then you, you see that the buyers are slowly gaining control and in that late stage one accumulation, that's where you anticipate the breakouts. So as the stock makes a higher high above the flat to uh, advancing longer term moving averages, that's when you want to participate in the stock. So you imp- anticipate in stage one, you participate in stage two, and as it makes the higher highs and higher lows, you manage risk and hold on as long as the stock tells you to based on whatever time frame you're engaged on. So, in other words, as long as it makes higher highs and higher lows, you stick with it. And then as it undergoes distribution, we see the opposite of now the – the well, we see that the stock is, is not going higher anymore. It's being met with more supply. The moving averages cross back and forth, representing indecision, and it's either digesting those gains – through time before a breakout, or if it breaks down, then we look at it and say, okay, now the moving averages are heading lower. This is a stage four decline. That stock is an avoid if you're just a long trader, or it's a a short sale candidate. So those four stages um, allow you to just kind of very simply look at the the market or an individual stock and say who's in control buyers or sellers or is it unclear and if it's unclear the beauty of that is that's just an avoid there's no reason to go near that stock and and you know give it some time keep it on your watch list come back to it but there's no reason to be involved in a stock that's just going sideways
2: yeah well i mean there's always plenty of others to choose from isn't there Exactly. It, yeah, I mean, if you can send through that that infographic, I'll post it with the with the show notes um, underneath this episode. Um, yeah, of course. At chat with traders um, on on the site. So, I have a question in regards to timeframes, and in, and how did you discover the time frame which was the best fit for your personality to trade? Like past guests on the show have mentioned. Uh, quite a few times that many traders often spend a long time working with a time frame that isn't necessarily the best fit for them. So, how did you discover a time frame that worked well for you?
1: Well, and that's a great point. And and going back to your, you know, what what lessons have been important. Um, Understanding your time frame is hugely important, and you know if you have the patience of someone like Warren Buffett, then you've got no business looking at an intraday you know chart for what happened for one day. But if you are maybe a little bit more, I think a lot of traders tend to be a little bit ADD and and uh, you know hop around a little bit from stock to stock looking for the action, then. You know, you shouldn't be looking at what pays the best dividend. So it, it, it comes with, it, like a lot of uh, success in the market, with understanding yourself personally and what works best for you. How much time do you have to commit to the market? Can you sit down in front of the market each day and and, and be on task and, 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 you know, pay attention to the micro movements and and be patient enough to um, not just get emotionally involved because you're bored and and I'm a trader, so I should be trading type mentality. So how much time do you have? How much capital do you have? How much experience do you have? No one should start out with day trading. Day trading is something you evolve or some people might say devolve to uh but because there's you know the the more often that you're confronted with having to make a decision in the market the more often it is the more likely it is that your emotions are going to creep into the decision making process and you're not going to be able to to control yourself as well so you start out everyone should start out with a longer term horizon whether it's uh you know, a couple months or you know, swing trading is really an ideal type of time frame because it gives you the opportunity to get feedback on your trades within a couple weeks, generally, and you you can learn and and. And, and hone in on things a little bit better, you don't have to be watching tick by tick. But if you are the type of person who you know can sit in front of the machine and uh, pay attention, control your impulses, and you've been successful on, on the couple-month horizon, then down to a uh, successful swing trader, if you can do that successfully, then you start to Experiment with day trading. It's it's a great skill to have. It's not appropriate all the times when you've got a choppy market environment. It's 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 a it's a great skill to have because it allows you to put some money in your account without uh, exposing yourself to overnight risk. Where we might have a market that's gapping on a frequent basis. So it's a it's a great tool. It's a skill. It's certainly not appropriate for everyone. Um, And and. To to start out just trying to day trade is something I would tell anyone that you're a fool if you try to just start by day trading.
2: Yeah, okay. So I think a lot of people who are probably quite new to trading are often attracted to the idea of day trading um, with with the mindset that you're taking more trades, you can make more money than whether if you're swing trading you might only take a few trades a week. Um, do you believe that there's you can make just as much money as a swing trader as someone who's a day trader? Like is there any time frame that, that makes more money?
1: I think swing traders uh, make more money than strictly day trades. Uh, all of the trades that I look for, I'm looking for a swing trade opportunity. I would ideally like to hold all of my stocks on a you know for a few days to weeks. However, the market gives me new information throughout the day, and I have an opportunity to maybe lock in some profits or avoid a uh, loss. So. I will, you know, the market will tell me, basically, it's not appropriate for me to hold, so I will day trade it instead. And 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 I will say that I also tend to have a personality that lends myself to probably a little bit more day trading than I should be doing. But it's also kind of kept me in the business at the same time that I, I'm not willing to sit with a loser uh, long enough to, to, to cause damage or to hit a stop that's 5% away when I, when I can cut my loss at 1% because I see the handwriting on the wall. And that's just something that comes with experience.
2: Okay, no, that's, that's a great answer. So, all right, Brian, well, this has been really, really good, but we should probably start to, to wrap things up. So let me just ask you um, one last question. And in your opinion, what is the reason for why the majority of traders lose money and never reach a high level of success? Why is there such a high turnover in this business?
1: Well, it's an extremely difficult business. There, there, anyone that tells you that it's easy is very is is lying, being misleading. Um, it's a difficult, difficult business. You have to have capital to start, um, but there's no barrier to getting involved. Let's say as a day trader, when we, you know, from day one, when you shouldn't. I think that people get impatient with the market. They don't find out who they are and what their personality and their appropriate time frame is in the market until after they've made too many big mistakes so that they want to get involved in the market and they see it as the opportunity for you know a way to make easy money when in fact it's extremely difficult and it it comes first with mastering yourself or no one masters their self, but you know, understand. You know, having a, a much better understanding of yourself. So I, th- I think it's impatience and then ego that when they get into a trade and they you know see that it starts going against them, they start pulling up news, they start looking for other opinions. Uh, their ego doesn't allow them to take that quick loser when when they. When they meant to, when they went in with a plan and said, I'm going to cut my loss here. But then their ego gets in the way and says, no, just buy a little bit more. It's definitely going to bounce. And they compound their problems. So not understanding their time frame and being impatient and not learning the, the, the mechanics of how the market actually trades um, and understanding the psychology of the flows of money without, uh, before they start, you know, sizing up their positions and, 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 you know, getting involved with too big a share size or just saying, hey, I like Apple, so I'm going to buy Apple. Well, Apple's not always a buy. All stocks go through that cyclical phase where they go through a stage four decline.
2: Yeah, what a great answer. Okay, Brian, well, we've hit on a, a ton of great points during this interview. And again, thanks so much for coming on and sharing A whole lot of knowledge with us this has been really good before you go can you share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you
1: yeah alphatrends.net and uh, stock twits it's at alphatrends so you can find my book also on amazon or technicalanalysisbook.com and um yeah that i'm pretty easy to find on the web
2: Okay, great. And your book title is Technical Analysis Using Multiple Timeframes. So we'll put a link to that uh, in the great. show notes at chatwithtraders.com uh, forward slash 29. This will be episode 29. Um, and you're also on Well, congrats on, on that, too. <laughs> Thank you.
1: On 29 episodes, yeah. Nice, nicely done.
2: Yeah, yeah. One a week. We're um, not slowing down. So um, you're also on Twitter as well, aren't you?
1: Yes, at Alpha Trends, okay. Alphatrends. Okay. A L P H A T R E N D S.
2: Great. All right. Well, all those links, of course, will be in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com forward slash twenty nine, so you can go there to, uh, you know, get a recap on this episode and all the links mentioned uh, to find out more about Brian. All right, Brian. Well, again, thanks so much for doing this, man. Take care, and let's talk soon.
1: Excellent. Thanks again, Aaron. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.